Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Isn't that a, a word for that in English? For what? Pimping, yes? He's pimping you out. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. I'd push him down the stairs and light his broken body on fire just to watch it burn, if it wouldn't start a world war. On House of Cards, not your average recap show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one is devoted to episode three, which we're calling You Have Just Been Served. And I'm joined by Les Gelb, former Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs, former New York Times Foreign Affairs columnist and President Emeritus and Board Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. Hello, Les. How you doing, Brooke? And I'm also joined by Fred Kaplan, War Stories columnist for Slate, author of The Insurgents, former Moscow bureau chief for the Boston Globe, and as it happens, my husband. Hi, sweetie. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the real centerpiece of this episode is a state visit from Russian President Viktor Petrov. And the episode opens just minutes before his motorcade arrives. We see the protesters outside the White House waving rainbow flags. And just when you think (laughs) that the parallels with Putin couldn't get any clearer, we turn to Remy and Frank, who are discussing Pussy Riot's attendance at the state dinner. And we have a clip set up for that. What about the Pussy Riot girls? I briefed them myself. Here's a list of the issues I want you to discuss with Petrov. Good to go. Tell them I did. Sure, it's a good idea to have them at the dinner. It's a smart idea. They're dissidents. They've been nothing but a pain in Petrov's ass. He wants to co-opt them with a photo? Fine. If it's important to him, it's important to me. Bob. (laughs) Okay. How likely is a scenario like that? Zero. (laughs) I was going to say minus 10, actually. It's it's so stupid that it makes the way the United States conducts diplomacy look good. (laughs) It would never, ever happen. No, I don't think it would be like having the Dalai Lama at some China state dinner. I don't even think that would be as bad. <laughs> I mean, you, you would expect Pussy Riot to do what they did at that yeah, dinner. Yeah, exactly. Petrov, Putin, would never expose himself to any possibility of anything like that. No. He might do it to to look good to the Americans, but the news would also go back home. And to de-delegitimize Pussy Riot would be a disaster for him. Yeah, but uh, otherwise, uh, it wasn't even good television. Oh, come on. Yeah, really? Are no. you saying the state dinner itself wasn't good television? No, I don't think it was good television. Oh, my God. You don't I... watch much television, do you? <laughs> I watch too much television. <laughs> I beg to differ, and I'm going to offer some evidence for my position that this was really good television. Uh-huh. So we're with Frank and Petrov now. Right. They're in the Oval Office. And by the way, Petrov, we were told, is played by Lars Mikkelsen, who is the brother of Mads Mikkelsen from Hannibal. And he was also in that uh, reboot of James Bond, where his eyes were bleeding and he's, you know, a big time gambler. It's a fantastically talented family. But in this scene, he gives 
Petrov a gift, a surfboard with Beatles lyrics on it, back to the USSR. It's a museum piece, but you can still ride it. You should come out to my dacha and Sochi sometime. We'll surf together. The water is cold as hell, but the women are very warm. Oh, I'm not sure what Claire would think about that. Well, bring her along. It's crawling with artists out there. She might find something she likes. Ouch. I mean, come on. You don't think that was a great <laughs> moment, Les? He uh-huh. knows all about Claire's affair. Those things would never, ever happen. Les, Even this isn't a documentary. Even this is a Putin. drama. Uh, you're not kidding. It's a drama. <laughs> but it's supposed to bear some resemblance to reality. It's not supposed to be pure (laughs) fantasy. Actually, you're touching on something that I'm finding a little problematic with this whole season. You know, the first two seasons, they were so outlandish. You know, it was almost a fantasy of a a power-hungry guy climbing to the top that when it lapsed from reality, you could overlook it. This one is aiming... For a certain amount of, of realism, it's much more realistic. It's about the limits of power, about the frustrations of dealing with the limits of power. And so things that depart from probability, to me anyway, they're more glaring than they were in the earlier seasons. Well, I, I, I really don't know about that. Of course, Frank's killing people in the earlier episodes. Yeah. That did stretch the imagination a bit. But here you had an American president and a Russian president acting in ways that were totally inconceivable. You're saying that it stretched the credulity to imagine a vice president pushing a reporter in front of a subway train. But this scene in the Oval Office is just completely unbelievable. Is that what you're saying? I found that scene where he pushed the person in front of the subway to be a a bit of a stretch as well. (laughs) But, you know, I, I kept on watching it just because I was intrigued by how, quote, Hollywood was going to try to uh, make Washington reality look. I wanted to see what they were going to do with it. Okay. Now, I think you're here under false pretenses. Because (laughs) unlike regular journalism, we wanted fans of this program. And it seems like you're... You're hate-watching the show, which is okay, but you have to understand still— Do you love still, to hate it? Do you love to hate it? Yeah, I love to hate it. I'm, uh, <laughs> I complain about this stuff all the time. But I, I watch it all. I, in fact, uh, my wife and I binge-watch the thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> look, the thing that I find kind of intriguing with this is that as this show is depicting it, Petrov Putin is the one guy that we have seen in the entire political galaxy— who sort of is on the same level as Frank Underwood for sheer ruthlessness. And Frank is sort of taken aback by it. I mean, let's, let me ask you this. You're a, a real politique guy, and, and so am I to a, to a somewhat less, lesser degree than you. But these scenes where they're kind of going at each other, forget about the plausibility. Isn't this kind of a, a satisfying look at what their ids are longing to say and, and, and push each other's buttons about. No, I don't think so. No? No, I think that they would push each other's <laughs> buttons about the policy issues and the underlying politics. But this was all very personal. I mean, uh, Petrov couldn't wait to hop in bed with uh, Mrs. Underwood. No, I said a fantasy the, the UN ambassador. Their... That was his main concern. Well, he was eyeing her all night. And part of that was to get Frank furious, 
which it did, this kind of machismo fight between these two. And if you stop thinking of it as a Washington drama and just thought of it as a kind of Shakespearean rush to power, right? I mean, in this episode, the one you said you didn't like, you see Petrov working on a number of fronts, manipulating him, kissing his wife, forcing them into a big Russian to drinking contest. To get, to, to get the missile defenses out oh, of Eastern Europe. By, by, by <laughs> driving him crazy, he was going to get the missile defenses out of Europe? <laughs> or maybe just for the sheer joy of it. I mean, both of them clearly became politicians not to do public service. So this is the full expression of that. They're able to be powerful and overpower another hugely powerful person who is perhaps their equal in ruthlessness. And actually, at one point, Frank says he's jealous of the fact that Petrov knows how the election's going to go, basically, because they're fixed, right? And you get the sense that Frank sees in Petrov what he wishes he had. Not only that, Frank has a little uh, sexual ambiguity. I mean, in the previous scene last week, You know, Frank was found by his wife crying on the floor, and it was clear that there's just an interesting dynamic there, and all of that isn't spoken, but there's a suggestion that uh, Frank is a complicated character that way. Well, he is complicated sexually, and we knew that from the previous years. Mm -hmm. And Petrov knows about this as well, presumably, and is pushing assorted buttons. Yeah, Yeah, there is this kind of uh, almost like the way Rudy Giuliani and people like that look at Putin as an enviable character who can do whatever he wants. If you want to treat it as these guys playing out a low-level Shakespearean play, I'm fascinated with it because the Frank Underwood character just interests me. He interests me in the sense that the slimy things he does remind me of the things that people in Washington often do. But they're not that stupid. Nobody invites the Russian president to a summit in Washington with virtually zero preparation. And uh, once they're talking to each other, he's prepared to give away virtually everything. His wife has to tell him, hey, now, honey, remember to be tough when you're dealing with this uh, uh, commie boss. Uh, It was ridiculous. And he got almost nothing in return for all of his concessions, except Russian participation in some idiotic peacekeeping operation in Jordan. It strained even Washington credibility. Hey, Les, you know, I was going to ask you, you might know this. There was one bit of dialogue between Claire and the Secretary of State, and they figure out some clever way to get the General Assembly to pass some peacekeeping measure that would circumvent the Security Council. If the goal is to get troops into the Jordan Valley, well, then there's more than one way to skin that cat. A multinational force? I would go through the UN. Peacekeeping? You wouldn't get past Russia's veto. There might be a way, but you'd have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Well, if you can give me guidance, I'm sure I can handle it. There is precedent with the Uniting for Peace resolution. We used it to get round the Russians for the Korean War. There is such a thing. Yeah? Has it ever been done? uh, Yes, it's been done on a number of occasions. What happened was this. You remember when 
North Korea attacked South Korea in June 1950, mm-hmm. we immediately went to the UN to get UN support for taking counter-military action. And luck be told, this was at a time when the Russians didn't show up for Security Council meetings. Right. They were boycotting. So there was a vote in the Security Council and to send forces to Korea and no Russian veto because they weren't there. Then the Russians went back and they read to the Americans the actual letter of the UN Charter, the letter of the law. And it seemed to be that anytime you want to use force, you have to have a concurrent vote by all five permanent members, of which Russia is one. So to deal with that that rather valid argument, Atchison, Dean Atchison, Secretary of State, went to the UN General Assembly and got them to pass this Uniting for Peace resolution, which was a way of circumventing the Security Council. So Mm. all that was kind of true. Uh, But there's no way in today's world, as you know, Fred, that you can get any UN operation unless the Russians say yes. But has there been anything like that since Korea? Yeah, there have been several instances of uniting for peace. There were minor minor circumstances, Mm -hmm. and I don't remember. But it's going to the UN, and I think it requires a two-thirds vote in the UN or something like that. At the end of the dinner party, the Petrov character is having everybody knock down drinks, yes. you know, from a hugely expensive bottle of vodka, one right after the other, pounding the drinks. Now, you've been at a state dinner. You've never seen anybody take over a state dinner like that, right? Never. Nothing like it. On the other hand, you've probably hung out with Russians. I know I have when I was working for NPR in Moscow. And I remember one incident where I was flying back on a military transport from some event where they were taking apart weapons. And it was just me and two military officials in orange crates sitting in the back of this cavernous plane. And they had vodka. And they basically were throwing back these shots and daring me to do it. And it felt vaguely threatening if I didn't do it. And I wonder whether or not you've ever been in a position to engage in this kind of measurement of your personal power by how quickly and how well you can toss back those shots of vodka. Absolutely. It it happened almost every social occasion with (laughs) with the Russians. And I think they did feel they could put us at an advantage by by getting us to drop drop kick one one vodka after another. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one story. And I was the U.S. negotiator on the conventional arms limitation talks, arms sales. And I was having one of the very evenings you're describing. And the Russian ambassador and I started to laugh about Washington politics. So the Russians, as you probably know, they never like to talk about their inside politics. That's dangerous stuff. So I thought I'd ask him a question about how they operated. And all of a sudden, he stopped laughing and downing his vodkas. And he said, Leslie, you don't expect me to talk about that. You Americans talk about your politics all the time, how things work, who stands where. That's a big advantage for us. <laughs> We're not going to tell you how we operate. <laughs> so, you know, the, sure they do it. But before these summits, 
Brooke, it's interesting. De Brennan used to be the one who set all this up. That's the Soviet ambassador mm-hmm. in Washington. These We're talking uh, the late 70s. Yes, the late 70s, and we're talking about under uh, Nixon, under Carter, under uh, Reagan. Mm-hmm. He, would see, he would set these up. And it's a very disciplined process where you say, here's the agenda. And then you begin to say, here's our position on this issue, here's yours. And here's what our guy is going to say when you meet. Here's what your guy is going to say. And you get it to the point on most of them where it's either near agreement or it's clear you're not going to reach agreement because you don't want the whole thing blowing up in your face the way the summit between Eisenhower and Khrushchev blew up Mm -hmm. in the uh, late 1950s. So they, they prepare these things with the greatest of care. It's not that things get done but you don't want a, a negative explosion. Mm-hmm. And that's what these meetings between uh, uh, Frank Underwood and Petrov were all about, explosions. Right. One of the most uh, definitive happens in what appears to be a, a White House stairwell where they're right, uh, right. having Cuban cigars. Right. And we do have that ready to go. <laughs> uh, you know... A woman like your wife, for example, would certainly make it worthwhile. Do you kiss the wife of every president you meet? Oh, not every president's wife looks like yours. <laughs> I'd push him down the stairs and light his broken body on fire just to watch it burn. If it wouldn't start a world war. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, I mean, if you're watching this less with a jaundiced eye looking for similarities and dissimilarities with the real world, then you're not in a position to enjoy grand guignol moments like that. No, you're right. You're absolutely right, because my watching these things always triggered memories that got in the way of uh, the pure enjoyment you seem to have experienced. (laughs) (laughs) Did did that scene uh, trigger any memories? That scene in the stairwell? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see. I would have thought that, that Nancy Reagan might have been thinking of that about Raisa Gorbachev at, at any number of times. <laughs> not funny. No, no jokes about how people look. Oh, but she hated her. It was not, not how they looked. You know, when, when Raisa Gorbachev, when they were looking at, at icons and Nancy was upset that Raisa wouldn't see the, the, the religious significance in the icons, <laughs> I can imagine Nancy thinking, I would love to push this bitch down the stairwell. <laughs> This is On House of Cards. We'll hear more from Les Gelb and Fred Kaplan after this. Was there anything in this particular episode with the state dinner at the heart and the arguments with the congressman Bob Birch about the Amworks program on the side and Doug Stamper's limping recovery and all of that. Was there anything in this episode that triggered a real memory? Or a counter-memory. Yeah, I I think most of it were were Mm counter-memories. I was involved in a number of summits, both as a participant and as a correspondent. And nothing was anywhere near as exciting or dramatic as this, maybe with one exception. Mm -hmm. That famous summit in Reykjavik, Iceland, between Reagan and, and Gorbachev, 
This is the one where they almost agreed to total nuclear disarmament. That's right. And Reagan proposed total nuclear <laughs> disarmament if if Gorbachev would accept Star Wars, right. you know, missile defense. And uh, Gorbachev said no. But the most depressed people after that leaked out immediately were Reagan's own advisors. They were all there, and they were furious that Reagan more or less unbeknownst to them, uh, came up with this idea of denuding the world of uh, pleasurable nuclear weapons. I know. That that's a, that story is not well enough known. Well, they didn't that want, he was freelancing his own peace plan. Well, also, they didn't want anybody to know. This has been written about since. He was really a nuclear abolitionist. I mean, it's kind of unlikely to think of it. They, they, did, they didn't want anybody to know that. He really thought nuclear weapons were would we'd be best off without them. That's true, but for him to actually make yeah. that proposal, his uh, staff, uh, Secretary of State, and the NSC advisor, and all of them were shaken. Yeah, Richard Pearl almost became a Democrat again. <laughs> <laughs> You see a president here who's only been six months in office, which I guess is a long time in presidential years. But does this episode suggest to you that Frank could learn how to do this better, since clearly so far he's not doing it very well? No. No? <laughs> no. You see a disastrous presidency, and if this were happening in the real world, he would certainly not be reelected. I mean, look at his domestic proposal his uh, America Works, where he was getting rid of every federal program in order to free up the economy to help the poor. I mean, that is about as bizarre a proposal for a Democrat or anybody as I've ever heard. Yeah, I agree with that. As was his (laughs) idea of sending this peacekeeping force into Jordan for reasons we never really quite understand. But the notion that we would make concessions to the Russians to be there where the Russians should have been delighted to be a, a part of the the deal. Interestingly, by the way, Petrov says, we don't want to get involved in this situation because we remember how you treated us when we agreed to be peacekeepers for Bosnia. Mr. President, we're already working together on several fronts. Nonproliferation, the war on terror, North Korea. I don't see any reason that the Middle East should be any different. Because it's an American plan. It's not an American plan. I'm promising equal terms. Our promises. Carter promised equal involvement and shut us out of Camp David. Clinton did the same with Bosnia. I'm the president now. That won't happen this time. Until 18 months from now when you're replaced. Yeah, we screwed the Russians in Bosnia. We got their troops there to have their imprimatur and then kept them out of uh, all the operations. Mm-hmm. So they, they felt we had uh, done them bad. It was interesting that Petrov brings it up because almost none of the American viewers could possibly relate to that experience. <laughs> <laughs> See, that, that must have been put there by uh, my colleague at the Council on Foreign Relations, Steve Sostanovich. Who's a, he worked in the government? Yeah, he worked in the NSC and the State Department. So are you willing to say that your friend has had insufficient control over the uh, credibility of this particular episode? Uh, Looked that way to me because Steve really does know his stuff very well. But look, you bring in these consultants not to tell you what to do, but to be there to say things that you can reject. 
in the name of art. <laughs> well, no, sometimes he probably came up. He goes, what, what's, what's an example where we screwed them before? And he probably came up with those. You know, they, they got some little cred and, and like, like that. Well, but. we it was not unusual for us to make proposals and then withdraw them, you know, two months later, six months later. And we did that... Uh, not infrequently in the arms control negotiations. What do you think of that scene where Petrov says, it's really not in our interest for there to be peace in the Middle East? This summit is not just for show. I want to make meaningful strides toward peace. The Middle East is hopeless. History tells us that. I'm offering you the chance to make history. I'll be honest with you, because you've been kind enough to invite me to your country. Russia has nothing to gain from peace in the Middle East. And more importantly... Nothing to gain from working with America. Do you agree with that? No, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. That they get leverage out of the conflicts there. Yeah. Less, I mean, Fred sort of has to stick with the show now that I'm doing this podcast, but are you going to stick with it? Oh, I don't do it just because you're doing it. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy watching it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit that despite all these criticisms, we binge-watched it to the very end. Why, why I, is We couldn't that? stop. Why, why is that? I'm sick. <laughs> Mentally, you mean? Or, yes, I think so. <laughs> well, I've met I've met Judy, and she is about as solid a citizen, as grounded and fine I'm, a human being as one could ever meet. I but she so. binged with you, right? Yeah, she binged with me, and she made a lot of the same complaints to me <laughs> that you're making now. Uh, she said, "Stop all this! It's a show." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think part of it, Les, is that. There is nothing else that I can think of on TV that deals with these kinds of things at all, not since, say, the West Wing. You know, there were people in the Clinton administration when that show was on who would say, well, which character do you think you are? I'm yeah. so-and-so. Are you so-and-so? They, they dug it, you know? We raised the same point every season we've watched this compared it to the West Wing, which I think was pretty good. There were some unrealistic things there, but by and large, its rendition of White House politics was pretty accurate. Well, let me tell you what Bo Williman, who created House of Cards, told me in the first episode of this podcast. Uh -huh. And that was that the West Wing really never crossed his mind because that was about politics. And this was about a marriage in a political context. Because I was arguing that this season, more than the previous seasons, seemed to be about process. That Frank didn't have enough time to be truly evil anymore. And he said that he sees this show through the prism of relationships, mostly through that of Claire and Frank, but also Doug Stamper and, uh, and Jackie and Remy and, and the others that weave in and out of the story. So... If you look at it that way, then the credibility of the scenes is less important than the the emotional truth of those relationships. And maybe that's the issue we should be focusing on. Well, I think that's a fair point. And I, I think that's about as good an explanation for the unreality of the program <laughs> as I've heard. Because uh, now that you say it, I'm thinking, really, what was this season about? It was about the power alliance between Frank Underwood and Claire, his wife, to get power and to wield power. 
But see, this is what I find interesting. The, the first two seasons, they were scrambling for power. They were right, it was like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, you know, even killing people, manipulating. And you remember, uh, I think Obama at some speech or something, he said, you know, he loved the show because, man, these, this guy knows how to get stuff done. <laughs> but this season, it's about, okay, he's at the top and he's realizing that he can't get a lot of things done. You know, he, he's restricted in his movements. Congress is getting in his way on everything. And it's about the limits of absolute power. And I'm thinking of if President Obama is really watching this. He's thinking, man, this looks awfully familiar to me now. Yeah. He, he, and his own party was a was going to throw him out. Right. Obama never sunk that low. Yeah. Uh, but this point about this being a series about the relationship between the two they had a deal going before, but they seemed more in love before than they did this year. This year it was about now that they've got power, how are they going to use it? How are they going to share it? Right. And uh, she has increasing objections to the sharing arrangement. Well, because in previous seasons she did all the compromising. And in this one, she wants to collect. Exactly. Can you imagine a, a first lady not not just becoming, but even wanting to become something like a UN ambassador? Even I think Hillary, is, as first lady to Bill Clinton, w- would have seen that that was probably not a good idea. Even Hillary, right? Why not? Because <laughs> you can do a lot more staying free and nimble. What uh, and and rolling Easter eggs? No, like writing a health care plan. You oh, know, that well, was disastrous right. enough. So. Right, well, she tried that. She would have been better off being UN ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I think we'll end this episode. Fred, thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Les, it was so great talking to you. You guys are great. Bye bye. On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Claire Tennisgetter and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media. Next episode on drone strikes and Frank's religious conversion. Well, I've got God's ear now.